Articles by Desiring God Wander Away to Her Written and read by Greg Morse A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he's been trying to remember all his life. In ten minutes' casual chat with her, it's more precious than all the favors that all the other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. C.S. Lewis Can you recall the enchantment, the intoxication of young love? Its gravity, its force, its demands. Perhaps we squint to remember what we thought we could never forget. The bottomless conversations, the nervous smiles, the re-watching in the mind moments just passed. We may smile to ourselves. That was a lifetime ago. Her voice reminds him of something he has been trying to remember all his life. Doesn't that capture it? But that was then. The spell wears off. The kids come. You spend days and weeks and years together. You've seen her without the composure and the makeup. She's seen you without the confidence and the strength. You've searched out this island called marriage. There's less to explore now. And love's still just a different kind. More realistic. The description above undergoes a revision. A young man marries that girl. The world returns to normal a few years after. He seems to have remembered that thing that pestered him. And ten minutes casual chat with her seems next to impossible with young children. He is, as they say, settled down. Much has been gained. Something has been lost. You wish at times you could return to that first meeting, that first date, that first time telling her, I love you. The romance is still honeyed when you make time for it. She is still beautiful when you remember to really look at her. She sleeps next to you now, but seems on some days farther than ever. She is yours, but come to think of it, you miss her. You've grown better friends, perhaps better partners in the family enterprise. But are you better lovers? Has the poetry, requiring so much time and attention, turned into abbreviated text messages and generic emojis? What a different vision for godly marriages the father of Proverbs hands to his sons. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Husbands. Be intoxicated always in her love. What a command. Literally, be led astray continually in her love. Be swept up. Lose track of time. Forget about your phone. Wander. Inebriate yourself in the dark red of marital love. Your wife, as the father crowns her, is a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Do we need reminding? As familiarity threatens to blind us, As fights and frets and changing figures would cool us, the king bids his son memorize the lover's irrepressible song. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart. She, not the adulterous woman, must be his addiction. Let us stray to her. We need this command, don't we? We are so prone to be led astray by lesser things. We whose passions can somehow weaken with possession. We who dull with acquaintance and brighten at novelty. 
We need a father to tell us on our wedding day. And then again at our 10-year anniversary, my son, be led astray continually to her, away from the tyranny of good pursuits and worldly ambitions, be intoxicated always in marital love. Has your pool of passions stilled? Many of us remember being implored before marriage, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Natural sprinters we proved to be. Desires galloped prior to marriage, when Satan tempted and we ached while apart. But now that time pleases and heaven smiles down, how our love slouches and our once unsleeping passions can hardly keep awake past nine. In a blur of married and modern life, are we still awake to our beloved? Do we only see the mother of our children? Will we never pause to really see her, who is beside us on this grand adventure? The wise father knows that our hearts, unwatched, grow blind to beauty. We think life unextraordinary, as we live on a planet spinning constantly, flung into a corner of the cosmos, revolving violently around a massive flaming ball, yet we yawn and call it Tuesday. But what is more wonderful still, we live with an immortal soul. In Christ, a co-heir of the universe, a redeemed one, indwelt by the God who made everything, a Christian wife. The alphabet of good husbanding begins with seeing her through faith's eyes. That is why I suggest we need to cultivate the habit of seeing her as the scriptures teach us to see her. Look at her. The husband of the Song of Songs. Drunk on anticipation and admiration, observes her as an artist bent over a portrait, or as Adam waking to behold Eve. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat, encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Song 7 verses 1 through 5. Now here, distinguish between descriptive and prescriptive. Charge not forth, good men, to describe your wife in this exact manner, but do learn from the husband's focus, his alertness, his ever-attentive eye that surveys his bride in quiet wonder. Husband, what does your wife's neck look like? Her smile in the morning, her gentle spirit, her strong convictions. Speak of them, perhaps sparingly, but notice them constantly. And when you do, Thank God, the artist, for what he is painting. Keep looking at her. Does this sustained, admiring stare depend on the beloved's appearance? Capped curves, bright teeth, ungrayed hair. Notice that the father teaches that the eye of the beloved does not recoil when it observes new wrinkles on skin, new wear and tear from everyday life. Look again at his charge. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. How old is she now? 
Youth is somewhere in the rear view. The wedding day, a distant memory. Decades have passed, perhaps. Always is your delight and duty. There she is. You gaze over your morning coffee at her. What do you see? The wife of your youth. The wife of your reminiscences. The wife of your now and former days. The world, so crude and boastful, would tell you that she, with chronic knee pain and doctor's visits, is past her prime, perhaps even disposable. With its diseased and rasping voice, it points to the youthful employee, the pornographic magazine at the checkout counter, the woman running past and painted on a tire. Behold, the lovely deer, a graceful doe. She will thrill you with the chase, satisfy you with fresher springs. No, 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 foolhardy flesh. I have my lovely deer, my graceful doe. She, no longer a youth, is better. The wife of my youth. We keep a most blessed fountain. Her breasts have not stopped filling me at all times with delight. No, 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 O oh dark and devilish temptation. You have no mastery here. My God, by his grace, has given me himself and more. He has gifted me her. And though our stay in the body be brief, though our figures droop and drag and waste away, she is even more beautiful now, more Christ-like than ever before, a companion no harem of illicit pleasure could rival. Be gone, all others be gone. I'm swept away, intoxicated, always in her love. King Caught in the Tresses Consider how closely Christ looks at his bride. How particular is he to pour over that beauty, which he himself bestows upon her, and at what cost? Ephesians 5, 25-27 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. His life, his crucifixion, his being marred beyond human semblance, all so that he could watch her walk down the aisle toward him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish before him. His eyes, keener than eagles, survey her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And then he, the perfect groom, will call her from this cursed world. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. What Marriage Whispers Marital intimacy, though not the Aphrodite culture would make her, is a precious gift. The father, while not merely pointing us to the marriage bed alone, is here bidding old lovers to drink deeply of the uncorked vintage of God's design. Marital sex, a lordly and bright sunlight, should itself bow. I believe we learned something of intimacy's proper place from, of numerous passages. A text that has always struck me as something as an oddity. Concerning the marriage bed, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan 
may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Contra many skeptical notions, intimacy in normal circumstances should be enjoyed in regular. Our lack of self-control and Satan's sure temptation ground this dictate. The soak under the silver waterfall serves more than delight in unity. It serves holiness. Regular coming together builds a gleeful rampart against the schemes of the enemy. But this was not the oddity. The oddity to me concerned what the couple might decide together to lay it aside for. Don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It struck me as odd that the apostle considered prayer the alternative and the superior. What does prayer as a planned interruption to the marriage bed suggest? It tells me that sex is a good and necessary gift for married couples from a good and gracious God, but not an ultimate gift. Sex was made for man, but not man for sex. Greater pleasures perch on higher branches. One might halt the lesser intimacy, might intentionally fast from the feast for the higher and greater prayer. The prayer closet, the place of intimacy with God, holds higher rank. Swept away. Marital intimacy, with all its high glories and some crawling challenges which here I've left undiscussed, samples wine from the coming orchard. Wine within this covenant chalice is ultimately about blood-bought union with a covenant-keeping God. The mountain peaks, the ocean deeps, the untamed thrill, the transfigured moments of pleasure and beauty in a healthy married life exist for him. Our union with him is not of one flesh as with a wife, but greater, of one spirit. Considering Ephesians 5, 31 32, John Piper clarifies, Leaving parents and holding fast to a wife, forming a new one-flesh union is meant from the beginning to display this new covenant. Christ leaving his father and taking the church as his bride at the cost of his life and holding fast to her in a one-spirit union forever. Marital union sketches union with Christ. So husbands, look at her. Keep looking at her. Awaken slumbering summer, foment tidy sheets, cast down enthroned shams, and forgo this intimacy at times to pray. Be intoxicated always in her love. Be led astray, and in that affection be swept away to a higher love, the love of Christ. Let her voice and all her love remind you of what you've been trying to remember all your life. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.